Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. George Barnett is with us today, uh, as he's been with us before, to discuss survey findings of the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. Welcome, Director Barna. Well, thank you so much. I'm not used to being called Director Barna, but uh, uh, I tell my comrades in the party that all is well. Yeah. Commissar Barna. Very good. Very <laughs> good. Uh, comrade. Uh, now, um, uh, maybe before we get into the specific findings here, uh, just refresh our readers on the work of the Cultural Research Center and maybe the the quick website uh, through which people can access your findings. Sure. We do uh, public opinion and behavioral research with the American population, but the areas that we focus on are those of worldview and cultural transformation. So we tend to study what are sometimes referred to as the seven mountains of culture and find out what's going on in each of those dimensions of our culture. And in terms of worldview, we want to understand what is people's worldview? How do they develop it? How are they applying it in their lives? And if they don't have a biblical worldview, how might we be able to move them more toward that? Uh, if people want to see the work, uh, all of it's available for free at culturalresearchcenter.com. Let me add that uh, I used your survey findings in a book I had come out recently on on millennials and where millennials are now that they're in their early 30s. Uh, and I, I just want to say that your your research extends farther than just religious belief, biblical belief. You you talk more widely about attitudes, uh, social attitudes, uh, uh, their their sense of themselves and and their lives. So just just let me let me add and 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 I found the work that you do very useful uh, because of the profiles, the broad profiles that you're able to draw. Okay, uh, the latest release drawn from your survey research is entitled A Detailed Look at How the Worldview of Parents of Preteens Misses the Mark. Uh, before we get to specifics, what is your understanding your general understanding, your assumptions about the role of parents on, on at least certain issues. How do you think they should approach their children when it, maybe when it comes to religious matters? Yeah, I guess I would say there are two things that to me jump out. One of those is that biblically, it's parents who are given the primary responsibility for developing the worldview and the lifestyle choices of their children. And related to that, I would also say that what we've discovered is as we've looked at the attitudes and the choices of children, 
there are certain entities that have greater influence on them than others. The single greatest entity of influence is their parents. So parents do have that window of opportunity to make a difference in the thinking and the choices of their children. But what we've also discovered through our research, uh, particularly this year, some of the studies that you're referring to, is that while parents have that potential impact, they're not using it to move their children to a distinctly biblical worldview. In fact, parents don't tend to think about worldview development at all. They tend to think about more emotional factors in their children's lives. They want them to be happy. They want them to be comfortable. They want them to feel secure. They want them to feel like they're in a good and positive environment, those kinds of things, as opposed to drilling deeper and thinking about, yes, but what is the nature of a human being? How did we get here? What difference does it make? Are there spiritual truths and principles that ought to influence your life? Those are not the kinds of conversations and not the kinds of parameters that parents are focused upon. Your research sets out to document that. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, documenting the, the failures of the parents to do that, we have the data sets uh, that you lay out, which really evaluate the, the state of that child rearing process. Uh, these, are, these are questions designed to get to that transmission, the, the deep transmission that you, that you just mentioned, correct? Yes. And Mark, part of the reason why we're looking at the parents of pre-teenagers is because in the past, the research that we've been doing that's led up to this showed us that a person's worldview is developed primarily between 15 to 18 months of age and the really? age of 13. Huh. And so it's those early years where a person's worldview is developed. And a lot of people are surprised by that. They say, gee, I would have thought it would have been teenagers, college students, young adults, because they're the ones that are really starting to think more concretely. They're the ones who are making decisions that matter in the world. And in point of fact, it, it takes place much younger than that because of what a worldview actually is. And so many people don't understand that everyone has a worldview. The issue isn't, will you have a worldview or not? The issue is, which worldview will you possess? And that worldview is important because what a worldview does is it serves as your personal filter through which every decision you make is made. So, you know, we look at our culture and we say, oh, gosh, I don't like the way that, you know, we're doing in terms of relationships, in terms of finances, in terms of politics, in terms of whatever. And really, we cannot, I don't believe, stand back and say, well, therefore, we have a political crisis. We have a family crisis. We have an economic crisis. No, we don't. What we have is a worldview crisis because all of the outcomes that we're concerned about are the result of choices, decisions that people made emanating from their worldview. So if we want to change those choices, we have to change the worldview. And that's why it's so important that we be focusing on children is because they're now putting into place those basic building blocks, those decision-making filters 
that they're going to carry with them for the most part for the rest of their life. What we found is that once that worldview is developed by the age of 12, 13, 14, somewhere in there, it's it's just about completed. It mm. rarely changes after that. It can change. You know, it can change from a spiritual perspective if the Holy Spirit comes in and causes a change. It can change from a worldly perspective if a person encounters a major crisis in their life that causes them to go back and re-examine all of their basic building blocks and say, gee, did I get something wrong that caused this crisis? How do I need to change it? So yes, it's possible and it does happen that people's worldview changes. But by and large, what we find is by the time you get to your adult years, you are who you are. And so one of the challenges that I pose to churches is, you know what, I think you're wasting most of your time and resources because what you're doing is trying to change adults. Adults don't change. They're Mm -hmm. not looking to change. They're not in a place where you simply throwing information at them is going to change those building blocks. It's got to be a much deeper, more strategic and intentional process if you want to change an adult. You know, when when you were talking about the very young ages, let, let me say, is it correct for parents to see their two-year-olds this way? They're sponges. They're going to absorb what you say, not only what you say to them, not only what you explicitly teach your two-year-old, but they're going to absorb the way you behave, the way you talk to others, the way you act out in public when the kids are with you. That this is where this is part of the derivation of worldview. Is that correct? It, it's absolutely correct. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that we try to get parents to understand is that you're not just babysitting with the child when they're one, two, three, four years old. Everything that they're exposed to, they're trying to figure out how life works. So they're looking for clues. And because they've developed a relationship with you and they trust you, they're looking to you for clues. And one of the things that our current research has identified is that parents are frustrated because their children aren't paying attention to them. Well, as we dug deeper into that, what we found, Mark, is that it's not that the kids don't care what their parents say or think. It's that they're listening to what their parents say. And then they watch what their parents do to figure out, okay, what does that look like in practice? Hmm. And they're seeing such a contradiction between what's being said and what's being done that the conclusion that children are drawing is, wow, I guess mom and dad are just as confused about life as I am. They don't have the answers. So I'm going to have to look elsewhere. And that, frankly, is what led us to find Yeah, that's why the media have more influence on the minds and hearts of children than anything else. Now, when children watch a movie, watch a television show, listen to music, play a video game, whatever the medium might be, it's communicating elements of a worldview. And what we find is that most of the media to which American children currently are exposed is not communicating elements of a biblical worldview. It's communicating elements of other worldviews, whether it's secular humanism, postmodernism, Marxism, Eastern mysticism, whatever it may be. And the reason why children are so attentive 
to those worldviews and so open to those worldviews is because when they watch the movie, it's consistent. Hmm. And so one of the keys in this worldview development process is consistency. Uh, we did another study with parents where we found a large national sample of young adults who are dynamic Christian individuals. We interviewed them about what their parents had done to help them become that way. Then we went, we interviewed the parents. We said, what do you think you did? And one of the most interesting things, I think the most significant thing that came out of that study was that both the children who were now young adults and the parents of those children said, yeah, what we learned is that consistency was the most important thing. And so even as we're helping our children to develop a worldview, we've got to be consistent. And that may mean that we've got to limit and monitor and mediate the media to which our children are exposed. Absolutely. You know, uh, before getting to, to some specific findings, you note here in, in this report that American churches typically go about measuring Christian faith in, in the wrong way. They might measure church attendance or frequency of prayer. In, in general, quantity over quality. What, what, what do those measures miss? Well, when Jesus taught his disciples, he said, you know, you will be my disciple when you, and then there were three instances in the book of John where he's with them, and he says, you'll be my disciples when you obey my teaching. That's in John 8. In John 13, you know, he talks about how you'll be my disciples when you love each other. It's behavior. And then he talks about, in John 15, you'll be my disciples when you produce a lot of spiritual fruit. So if Jesus is defining discipleship in those terms, those ought to be the kinds of things that we're not only trying to facilitate in a person's life, that they believe the right things so that they can do the right things and therefore produce the kind of spiritual fruit that honors God and develops his kingdom. But that's not what we're looking at. We're looking at, do you show up at church? Do you give money? Do you participate in programs? Have we as the church offered enough programs? Have we built out enough square footage? Those are the kinds of things churches measure, which have nothing to do with what Jesus said discipleship was about. So if we believe that the Great Commission is still relevant for today, we need to go back to figure out when he says, make disciples, how did he define a disciple and then measure those things? Uh, an added uh, an added criticism is that when church leaders do see uh, low levels of participation or devotion, they misinterpret those poor results as merely lifestyle shortcomings. You, you use the term lifestyle rather than serious deficiencies of, of faith. Is, is that because they don't want to come off as being too too much of a rebuke? They don't want to chastise people? Is that, well, why do they misinterpret the results in that way? Well, there are two things that most churches don't want to do. Most church leaders don't want to create. One is controversy. The other is conflict. And yet, when you look at the ministry of Jesus, 
it relied upon those things, not because that was his intent, but because as he displayed biblical truth for people, that simply is what it stirred up. The things that he taught about became controversial. And the kinds of exchanges that he had with people who were uncomfortable with it resulted sometimes in conflict. That's just the nature of human transformation. When you move from one place in your life to a very different place in your life, yeah, there there may have to be some controversy and conflict that motivates and stimulates that kind of transition from who you were to who God has called you to be. But churches, because of the way that they tend to evaluate success, you know, when we talk with pastors, we said, you know, is your church successful? Most of them said yes. Say, great. How do you know that? And they fed back those those five components to us. You know, people showing up, how much money we raised, number of programs, number of staff, square footage. Well, if that's how you determine success, then conflict and controversy are your enemies. But if you look at the way that Jesus built disciples, how he grew people into being his disciples, it incorporated conflict and controversy and hardship and difficulty, persecution, suffering, all the things that modern day churches don't want to experience, much less facilitate. Uh, So we've got to decide whose side are we on here? What are we trying to accomplish? Are we willing to maybe grow smaller in order to grow more appropriate? Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You have a term in here, an epithet, minimal Christianity. And I think our, our listeners can probably sense what, what that's about, but what are the minimal elements of this kind of Christianity that we see across the churches? Well, I mean, what we typically see is that people believe that they are being a good Christian if they attend church, if they pray, uh, if they own a Bible, uh, if they try to be good people. Now, the, the unfortunate part is that three out of four Americans believe that people are basically good. Bible teaches us we're not basically good. We're basically <laughs> sinners, you know, and, and we need to do something about that sin. Most American Christians believe that it's up to them to deal with their sin problem, as opposed to recognizing you don't have what it takes. The <laughs> only one that can address your sin is Jesus Christ. Now, you can play a role in that by inviting him to forgive you for the fact that you consistently sin for wanting to repent, which means, you know, change your mind, turn your life around, move to a different place behaviorally, attitudinally, belief-wise, that's all part of that process, but only he can save you. You realize, Mark, that most of the people who identify themselves as Christians in America 
do not believe that Jesus is the antidote to their sin problem, and much less the rest of the culture. I mean, these are the people in the church. So when we talk about the concept, for instance, of a mission field, I mean, God did us the greatest favor ever by saying, you know what? You don't want to go to Guatemala. You don't want to go to Russia. You don't want to go to Colombia. You don't have to. Go to church. The biggest (laughs) mission field you'll find is in the pews. These people don't get it. And so you have an incredible opportunity to see transformed lives if you simply share God's truth with the people who allegedly are going to church to get God's truth, but haven't embraced it. And frankly, based on our our current studies with pastors and their worldview, they're actually not likely to hear truth in a church. So you may be the, the most significant minister in a person's life. It's not the job of a paid professional. It's your job as a disciple of Jesus to be sharing the gospel with others, even if it's inside a church. Okay, the findings. First, only 50% of parents believe in the genuine biblical God. What do we say about that? Well, I, I think a lot of this goes back to the teaching that we're getting in churches and the fact that not only is it not always clear and consistent and strong, i.e. biblical, but so much of what people embrace as their worldview comes from the media. I mean, as we looked at what influences people's thinking about biblical realities, what we're finding is that the media have the greatest influence. Churches have very little influence. Now, a large part of that is the fact that they're already coming in with their worldview developed. And so in many cases, what they're simply waiting for the pastor to do is to reinforce what they currently believe. If the pastor dares to teach something different, unless there's a consistent flow of information and opportunities and relationships and accountability related to that, people are going to write it off as an aberration. They're going to say, well, wasn't that odd? Hmm. You know, as opposed to saying, wow, that's a different perspective. I need to think about that. But there's nobody there to help them work through it in most cases. So, yeah, we, we've, we've got major issues with the most fundamental of biblical principles, such as who is God? What is his nature? How does he operate? What are his goals? How can I get on board his train as opposed to asking him to get on board my train? Uh, let me, as you were talking, I was thinking of a word of advice for, for parents with the small children. You know, how about simply reading out of the Bible to your kids? I mean, just, just spend, you know, say you read to your child, you know, 40 minutes at, at night. Why don't you make 10 of those minutes reading a few of the parables, right? Or just reading, reading a little bit of the Exodus story. I mean, Something that would be would be storytelling, but out of the Bible. Why not do that? It, it's a great way. You know, Mark, one of the things that we've discovered as we've been studying discipleship is that today there, there are several things that are very, very important in that process. And one of those is that we teach people through stories. We now live in a storytelling culture. People want narratives. 
And so there are a few things that are important for parents to think about if they want their child to have a biblical worldview. One of the things is they as parents have to have it because you can't give what you don't have. Hmm. But then secondly, once you have that biblical worldview, can you articulate the big arc of scripture, the grand narrative as postmodernists would talk about it, being able to talk about the, the comprehensive overall story of what Christianity is about, and then be able to tell individual stories that demonstrate what that looks like in practice. And so akin to what you were suggesting, which I think is a fabulous idea, yes, read the stories in the Bible. Yeah, you know, some parents say to me, well, where do I start? What do I do? Well, I tell you what, how about if you start out with the first few chapters in Genesis, and then maybe you get bored with that as parents are wont to do? How about if you skip to the Ten Commandments, Exodus, you know, go there, it's short, it's simple, but man, is it important? And then if you feel like you're getting too legalistic, how about if you jump to Jesus, go, go to the Sermon on the Mount, you know, Matthew 5 through 7, and he's got some incredible stuff going on there that's life-changing. And then if you want to end with a flourish, let's go to the early church and see what did they do with it. And so go to the book of Acts and begin to read about what they went through and you know what? I mean, we're, we're talking about a total of maybe 30, 40 chapters that you're going to read just with those. And there are other approaches that you could take that are going to be a lot more systematic. But, you know, for those who, you know, want to dip their toe in this, that might be an easy way to do it. And I tell you what, as a parent, if you just touch on those few chapters and you have to explain to your children what it means, because they're going to ask you what seem like very simple questions, but they're often really profound. Yeah. That's going to be a great time for you to re-examine your faith as well. Next, uh, only half accept the Bible as the genuine word of God. So, George, if they don't accept the Bible as the genuine word of God, what is the Bible to them? What do, what do you think the Bible is to them otherwise? Just some nice you know, ethical lessons or something? They believe that it's one of the great books in history, that it contains a lot of great ideas for how to live, but that you can't really trust all of it because there are some errors in it. There are some things that are culturally irrelevant now. There are some things that are just flat out wrong. And so you have to be the arbiter as the reader of scripture, as to what you draw from. So it's kind of interesting because what that means is that you think you know better than the Bible. You could actually write something more appropriate for humankind today, something that would be more relevant, more reliable, more trustworthy, more accurate. And that's an incredibly scary thought, but that's where most American parents are coming from. And it's got some good ideas, some interesting characters, some nice stories, but you got to be real careful what you believe from it. Next, we'll jump around a little bit. Fewer than one in five parents see success in life as related to obedience of God's laws and commands. Only one in five, or less than one in five there. Yeah, less than 
Yeah, again, it's kind of interesting looking at that because what we found is that most parents would say, you know what, it's all about what you're able to accomplish. It's all about your reputation. It's all about your comfort in life. Or the biggest one of all, it's all about can you become happy? And so when people are looking at success, they're saying, well, you've got to do the things that produce those kinds of outcomes. Now, why is that? Well, it's because if you dig down a little bit deeper to their understanding of God and purpose in life, what you find is that they don't believe that God is really in charge. They don't believe that God really cares about what goes on day to day. And when they think about purpose, they believe that God probably didn't make us. But even if he did, what he would want for us is happiness and comfort and security. And so when you have that mindset that life is about me, that changes everything. Only one in three see the fate of individuals depending upon the being of Jesus. How did we lose this? Well, you know, if you don't believe the Bible is true, you don't believe that God made us, you don't believe that you have a purpose from God, you don't believe that success has anything to do with how you respond to him from moment to moment, and you believe that if there's going to be anything that happens after we're done here on earth, that it's all dependent on you, what you facilitate, what you provide for, what you anticipate, well, then that kind of makes sense. You know, but all of those assumptions are wrong. That's the issue here, is that the building blocks are the wrong blocks. That leaves, when when we add these things up, (laughs) we've got, it's hard not to, one doesn't know whether to laugh or cry. Mm -hmm. Uh, Only a meager 2% of parents fully hold the biblical worldview. Maybe a little here, a little there, but when you add it up, only 2% hold a biblical worldview. Uh, what, 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 what can be done? Uh, th- this is really la- last question for, for, for us. What can be done here? Well, there are several things to think about. One is if this disturbs you as a parent, first, you got to look at yourself. You got to figure out, am I contributing to the problem or the solution? If you don't have a biblical worldview, you're most likely contributing to the problem because you can't give what you don't have. And so the first step for you is to stand back and and change. Allow God to transform your mind and your heart so that you are obeying consistently his principles. You know what they are and you commit yourself to living that way. And then as a parent, you can go to your children and be able to share with them the things that you now know to be the truth, the ways of living that you know are now the ways that honor God and advance his kingdom, and the things that will equip your children to live a meaningful and successful life from God's eyes. In that process, you can bring people around you who have a biblical worldview and can help you to not only shape your own worldview more appropriately, but that of your children as well. 
And that means that you're probably going to have to change a lot of lifestyle elements, the media that you engage with, the people that you hang out with, the things that you've committed your life to. A lot of those things may have to change. And so this is huge. I mean, really dramatic. But it comes back to that question of, so why are you alive? Are you alive because God created you for his purposes and ultimately he's the one who evaluates your life? Or are you alive because you think you are a free agent? You're the one who's put it all together and ultimately you're responsible to yourself. You know, if you're responsible to yourself, don't worry about all this stuff we've been talking about. But if you believe that God is the creator of all things, including you, and that he loves you enough that he created you for a role on earth as part of his kingdom, then you better figure out what that is, how you can fulfill it, and how you can bless your children as well as other people by helping them to understand those same things for their life. The latest report is a detailed look at how the worldview of parents of preteens misses the mark. George Barna, thank you again for joining us. And we will see you, we hope to see you again in a few months. I hope to do it, Mark. Thanks so much. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.